So there is a series, and I'm just going to kind of huddle with my uh, warm coffee here to warm my hands up. That's okay. Uh, there's a series of three polemical parables in Matthew 21 and 22. Uh, our gospel reading today is one of them about the vineyard. It's sandwiched between two parables. Uh, the first one you heard, the two sons. So there's that one. Uh, there's ours today, parable of the tenants, and then the wedding feast. That comes after it. So uh, the working title of this one, which you might see in your Bibles, is the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants, something like that. And I say they're polemical uh, because they are in the sense that Jesus is taking aim at uh, the Jewish leaders, uh, chief priests and Pharisees. That's the audience here. That's who he's talking to and conversing with. And as usual, Jesus is stirring up good trouble. Okay, hands warm now. So all three of these parables focus on God's true people. Who is the true Israel? Okay, Uh, It's not always who you think. Still a relevant question for us, too, as Christians. Who are God's people? Who are they? What are the marks of them? Who are the faithful? It's a big theme in in Matthew, actually. So parables, uh, you know this, but let me just refresh you a little bit. Parables function a little bit like these time bombs in the human heart. So they're full of suspense. They're full of irony. They've got these big paradigm shifts. They sort of turn your thinking around and turn it topsy-turvy. Jesus loves to do that. He uses these parables to disrupt for redemptive purposes. And often Jesus uses them to provoke a sense of choice from the people that are hearing them. So Jesus likes to use parables to shake people out of their complacency and to reveal what's going on in here on a deeper level. So to bring to light things hidden in darkness. So that was true in first century Palestine. It's still true for us today. So the parables are just as relevant to us. Now, if we're to catch Jesus's meaning, One of the things, there's a bit of hard work we have to do. We need to first kind of put ourselves in that culture's sandals and hear things as best we can with like first century uh, Jewish eyes and ears. Now, that's hard. That's not easy. It takes a little work from us. Uh, It definitely puts, uh, that's always some of the work on my end of sort of trying to translate that in a way that we can understand it. Because we're kind of trying to go, how would they have heard it? How did the chief priests and the Pharisees hear this? You know, who did they identify with in that parable? Okay, who are they saying? Oh, yes, I find myself there. Easier said than done, right? Challenging. But there's an importance to understanding that context, that historical setting, so that then we can sort of translate it into our own lives. We need to understand their story first before we translate it into ours. So it's kind of a two-step process. Um, If you want to think of it this way, it's, it's inhabiting the story on God's terms as a first century Jew, which Jesus was and which is... Uh, here's word two. So that's our first step. Second step, so that's, and it is chronological. You've got to do that first. Second piece, uh, when you do hear Jesus' parable, you should look for yourself in the story and ask yourself, who do I identify with here? And ask yourself, you know, why that is. Who do I presume to be in this story? And you need to allow Jesus to speak into that and to shift our understanding. Uh, for example, uh, you hear the prodigal son. That's a famous parable. You might, say, identify with, say, the younger son, maybe initially. You might think more on it, and the Holy Spirit may do some work in your heart, and you may go, no, actually, I think I identify more with the older son. So we let God shift that around. And while Jesus' parables aren't always really these precise allegories, this one happens to be crystal clear, I think. Uh, He doesn't leave much ambiguity here, which is... He's pretty straightforward for Jesus. Uh, He's not always straightforward with his parables. 
This one, however, is different. So Matthew 21, 33 to 46, the parable of the parenthetical wicked tenants. So here's the story. Master of the house or landowner, some translations say, plants a vineyard. It's got a fence. It's got a wine press. It's got a tower. He leases it out to some tenants and he goes off into another country. Okay. So Jesus speaks in very familiar everyday terms. I don't know about you, but like the, the food and the things that I eat, I don't know where they come from. You know, this is different. This is an agrarian society. So grapevines, olive groves, wheat fields, those were just common sites. And many people labored in those contexts. They worked in those contexts. They were far more tied to the land creation uh, than we are. Right. So they worked the land. They worked the sea. It was their source of livelihood. It was their survival was based on it. So in this case, Jesus speaks of a vineyard. Again, something very common that they would understand. Now, to do a vineyard, as the way this is described, is a serious investment, long-term endeavor, okay, to plant a vineyard like this. Sources say you would take at least four years of construction and waiting on the vines to mature before you can get any return. Okay, four years. So that's all output, all money out, money, money out, four year minimum, no return on investment. Okay, nothing. So I eat not cheap. So this landowner is someone of means and it shows that he's in it for the long haul. Okay, in it for the long haul, four years of no investment. He's got the long game in mind. So this is not a get rich quick Ponzi scheme thing. No, not at all. He's got the long game in mind. He leases it to tenants while he goes to another country. Again, uh, for us, we kind of go, eh, what's that about? That's a common arrangement then. And the agreement is this. So the tenants, they get to keep a portion of the harvest. That's their wages, okay? And they might get free room and board too. Don't own. But they don't own anything. They're only stewarding uh, the vineyard for the landowner. He's an absentee landowner in this thing. Again, not uncommon uh, in the far-flung regions of that rather vast Roman Empire for someone to own something and live elsewhere. Not unusual. And let's remember Jesus' audience, chief priests, Pharisees. They would have easily identified with this. I say that because many of them, compared to the average Jew, were wealthy. They were people of means. And they might have owned land apart from Jerusalem. Again, not uncommon. So again, speaking their language. But I think most importantly, there's another biblical layer here. The vineyard, and I hope you heard this in the Isaiah reading in the psalm, This is a familiar Old Testament metaphor, okay? The vineyard. Jesus' very biblically literate audience, chief priests and Pharisees, they know this immediately. They hear vineyard and their ears perk up. They understand what it means. The vineyard was a clear symbol for Israel, God's chosen people, his prized possession. So if you want to think of it simply, Israel equals vineyard, okay? Now, that makes the landowner who? Anybody want to venture a guess? God, okay? The landowner becomes the Lord, okay? Stuff just got real, okay? Now, you probably heard this again in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. So Israel is that vineyard. God's prized possession, him being the landowner. So that's just verse 33. So while it doesn't sound particularly meaningful to us or maybe even interesting, Jesus is conveying an awful lot, and he's setting the stage. So, okay, stage is set. Harvest time arrives, okay? Fruit comes uh, to fruition, 
And the landowner, or master of the house, some, some translations say, sends servants to collect his share of the produce. Again, standard operating procedure. This is just how it goes down, exactly how it's supposed to go. But here's where things get weird. The tenants beat one of the servants, they kill one, and they stone the other. So the landowner does the same thing again. He sends even more. He sends servants. And the same thing happens again. This is verses 34 and 36. So let's think here, okay? Let's play this out. If Israel, God's chosen people, is the vineyard, okay? If the landowner is the Lord, who might these servants be? Anybody want to take a stab at that? The prophets. Absolutely. These are the prophets uh, whom the Lord made his appeal through. And he did it more than once, which this shows us. So already what I want you to see here is a picture that this landowner is forbearing and gracious and pretty long-suffering, if you think about it. This is the God of second chances. So we see this. Now, there's a certain tragedy about this situation, too, that we need to see. These tenants were hired by the landowner to protect and maintain the vineyard. Not just maintain it, but to protect it. He trusted them, okay? Trust. And this isn't a story about foreign invaders coming from outside to try to plunder, steal, and kill. These are insiders who have violated trust. So this is a deep act of betrayal. We have to hear it in that light. So, okay, plan A failed, some servants, more servants. Plan B, that failed. Let's go to plan C, verses 37 through 39. He sends his son thinking they will respect him. Now, who here thinks that sounds like a good idea based off uh, previous data? Anybody think that sounds smart? No, uh, and to our modern eyes, it doesn't. And this is, we missed something here. Uh, it sounds like a fool's hope to do this. It sounds incredibly unwise, maybe even stupid. But in a culture driven by those strong notions of honor and shame, remember me talking about that last week? Really strong forces. Um, this wouldn't have been foolish or dumb. The landowner's decision to send his son as an emissary was quite appropriate. And he could expect them to show proper respect for his heir, right? The heir brings with him the gravitas and the authority, the, the presence of the owner. So this, it sounds dumb to us. It would have been more reasonable in that context because of how honor and shame work together. Now, you guys are a bright bunch, and I know this. You're probably already connecting the dots. Okay, let's do this. Israel's the vineyard, okay? God's the landowner, okay? The servants sent to collect the produce are the prophets. Okay, tracking with me here? Here comes the landowner's son. I wonder who that could be. I, I'm not going to patronize you because I think you know. And a better question I find here is, I wonder when exactly that little part of the truth bomb, the parable, went off in the chief priests and Pharisees' hearts. Let's read on. So the son goes as an emissary of the landowner. And the tenants plot to kill him and to, quote, unquote, take his inheritance. Now, this is foolishness. This inheritance part makes no sense. They don't have access to that. There's no real way for them to get the inheritance if they kill him. It's, it's ridiculous notion. That's not how things worked. But clearly, we're not dealing with sort of this rational, reasoned action. Uh, 
it's more, I think, shows just the heart of these tenants, that they're greedy and that they're violent and that they feel entitled to something. So they kill the son and they cast him outside the vineyard, Jesus says. Foreshadowing anyone? You better believe it. The son is murdered and thrown out of the vineyard. What's rightfully his is denied him. He's killed and he's thrown outside the vineyard walls as an outsider, not unlike Jesus being crucified outside Jerusalem. Jesus closes with a question, verse 40. And again, really crucial to remember who the audience is here, chief priests and Pharisees. And here's the question he ends with. When the owner of the vineyard comes, which is an assumed reality at this point, what will he do with those tenants? So here's what the chief priests and the Pharisees respond with. They're indignant. They're absolutely indignant. The owner should exact justice. Punishment should fit the crime. They say something along the lines of, those wretches deserve death. That's their cry. Okay? The owner deserves tenants who will steward his vineyard as it should be done by providing fruit in season. Okay, folks, now we have ignition. (laughs) Who would treat God's chosen nation, his beloved people, and his prophets this way? Who would do that? They're indignant about this. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, for lack of a better phrase, they take the bait and Jesus sets the hook. And this section I find reads a lot like Nathan rebuking King David in 2 Samuel 12 with the whole Bathsheba Uriah debacle. So Jesus responds, he asks them that question. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? And he alludes to Psalm 118. He quotes it for them. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes it to them. And they would have known this. Okay? They knew their scriptures. So when he says, haven't you read this? It's a bit of a jab. And I think what he's saying is, Did, why don't you understand it? Have you heard it? Have you not understood? Jesus is saying that the rejected son in the parable is one and the same as the rejected stone in Psalm 118. The precious, marvelous cornerstone upon which something like a vineyard God's holy people might be founded. Now, that's an awesome, profound connection, but I find it still a little abstract. Uh, if I'm the chief priest Pharisees, I'm not sure I would have understand what he was getting at, other than I was in hot water, perhaps. Uh, but at the very least, notice where Jesus is now focusing his attention, and it is on the abused and the rejected son in the parable. And that is the Christological twist. So now, folks, we have liftoff. We get to verses 43 and 44. And he speaks a prophetic utterance and a divine pronouncement against the chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay? Starting to come, things are starting to come at a really clear focus. You are the wicked tenants in this parable. They had not identified themselves as that. You are the wicked tenants in this parable. And he says, therefore, essentially, your time is up. Your time is up. This vineyard, which he recasts as the kingdom of God, very cool, will be taken away from you and will be given to those who will produce fruit. In other words, you have not stewarded God's people, his precious vineyard, as you should have. Israel, the people of God, his prized possession, they are the fruit. They are the bounty. They are the harvest. Have you forgotten that? (laughs) You have not done well. This vineyard, it's going to undergo a massive reorg. 
That's why Jesus reframes it as the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? We've moved from vineyard to kingdom of God language. What's different? Well, the previous tenants are getting kicked out for mismanagement. Who's leading it now? It's my question. Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God will be given to a people. Some translations say a nation. It's a, I wouldn't say a difficult phrase there, but it doesn't convey all that it needs to. This phrase means we're moving beyond the descendants of Abraham. Okay, this people, this kingdom of God will be both Jews and Gentiles. Ah, Things have just opened up here. This kingdom of God, it's the same fruitful vineyard, but now is given new vitality via new stewards. So there's signs you used to see, maybe you still do, it feels old school. You ever seen the signs under new management? Remember that? People would put that up in the place of business. Yeah, right? In other words, it was kind of like, gosh, we thought the food stunk last time here. We're going to do a better job with this at our restaurant, right? This vineyard is now under new management, as the old sign used to read. These new tenants are bound together and characterized by and oriented around the faithful one, the rejected, vindicated son, Jesus. That's how you know who the true tenants are. That's the people of God. That's what stewardship looks like. That is this plumb line, okay? Built upon the rejected cornerstone, who is Christ the Lord, which now stands as a testimony against the Jewish leaders. So this vineyard situation, folks, just got very interesting. The passage ends... (laughs) As sometimes they do with, I find, sort of a humorous line. It's probably as sad as it is humorous, but I find it a little funny. Listen to this. So when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. (laughs) It's like, well, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. If you didn't catch that now, you're a little slow in the uptake. They have not cared for God's people as they should. They have not led well. So this is an indictment of those previously entrusted with the people of God. They acted as if they owned the vineyard and they didn't act as they were stewards. They didn't steward it as a gift, as God's precious vineyard. So let's close here with a few observations and thoughts. While this parable is often called, as I said, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants, certainly true, we won't deny that, it strikes me that it's more about this rejected son, right? Otherwise, why did Jesus land so hard on this particular point? Because he does. Maybe this is a better working title. It's a little wordy, but what do you think? The parable of the vineyard owner's rejected and later vindicated son and the better tenants to come. Too much? Yeah, it is too much. Uh, Not snappy, not short enough, more accurate. It does convey that sign that the vineyard's under new management with new tenants. Now, uh, there's a lot of points that we can make and sort of apply this to church leadership specifically. And that's, that's fair, but I, I don't think it's germane to most of us. So I want to get at something a bit more fundamental here at work in the parable. There's a more fundamental uh, principle, I think, at work. So the expectation is to bear fruit for the landowner, right? It's assumed that this vineyard, which Jesus rebranded as a kingdom of God, will produce fruit because that's what vineyards do, okay? Now, let me be clear. This isn't about the pressure of us producing the fruit. 
right? That's sort of good works. Let's work really hard. Get the fruit. Make the fruit. No, the produce isn't the problem. God takes care of the produce. The tenants are the problem, okay? So when God provides the fruit, I think the basic question it brings to us is what kind of stewards are we? When God brings the fruit, what kind of stewards are we? Do we co-labor in the kingdom of God alongside the Lord, returning to him what is his rightfully? Or do we take that fruit, keep it as ours, acting like we own it? So this is always a live question, always a fair question for us. So the entirety of our lives, they belong to the Lord. So it's kind of that essence, that that essential question of do we place our lives in, in God's hands, right? Do we steward our life well? Do we act wisely? Do we do something with the talents, biblical phrase, that he gives us? Or do we act as if our life is our own and we can do what we bloody well please with our life? Rather than thinking of, oh, this is a gift from God. So that's always a, a fair question, right? Are we owners or stewards? So there's that. But let me make it more specific to our church in this season. At some point, hopefully soon, <laughs> so we don't have to be cold and rely on coffee, although that's not bad. Hopefully soon we'll be in East Charlotte at some point. There will be new people when we go to East Charlotte. There will be new resources. There will be new challenges, all of which to be stewarded. If you want to think of it this way, it's a new vineyard, right? Though God will most certainly produce the fruit, it does require us to labor and sacrifice and tend to it. It's what tenants do, right? It's what they do. So we co-labor with the Lord in kingdom work. So we land in East Charlotte. There's a new vineyard there. Will we be wise with it? Will we be generous? Will we be sacrificial? Will we give back to the Lord the fruit of our labor? Will we be stewards? Or will we look at it as ownership? I think that's ever before us. And finally, Lynn here, lest we forget. This is a beautiful truth underlying this. Uh, the people of God, you and I, the kingdom of God, which we're a part of, his vineyard, you are incredibly precious to the Lord. You're precious to God. Unless you doubt that, look at this parable and see the links he goes to reach us. You're so precious that he sends his son to show us how it's done.